0: Hi, my name is Colleen. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let's sing out loud to the Lord. Let's raise a joyful shout to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanks. Let's shout songs of joy to him. The Lord is a great God, the great king over all other gods. The earth's steps are in his hands, the mountain heights belong to him, the sea which he made is His, along with the dry ground, which His own hands formed. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep in His hands. If only you would listen to His voice right now. Don't harden your hearts like you did at Meribah, like you did when you were at Massa in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and scrutinized me, even though they had already seen my acts. For 40 years, I despised that generation. I said, these people have twisted hearts. They don't know my ways. So in anger, I swore, they will never enter my place of rest. The word of the Lord.
1: Hi, my name is David. The New Testament reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So, Brothers and sisters, because because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what god's will is what is good and pleasing and mature the word of the lord
0: hi my name is maddie thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in john 4 verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, "'Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth.'" The Gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for who you are. And we ask right now that by your Holy Spirit, you would let your word come alive as we hear it. I pray that you guide me as I preach and proclaim and teach. But, Lord, we pray that it would be your spirit that communicates the word of God to us, that it would take residence inside of our hearts, take root inside of us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said Amen. You may be seated. I was about 13 or 14 years old when I first began leading worship. Our family had just moved back to Malaysia after living in Portland, Oregon for three years. My parents had attended Bible school there, and so my older sister and I, of course, were with them there, and then we moved back to Malaysia. And and shortly after returning, uh, the, the, the gal who was coordinating uh, praise and worship for our junior high uh, group said, hey, would you like to serve in this way? And I was, I was 13 or 14. I, I had taken piano lessons, mostly classical stuff, but had just begun learning chords and improv, and improv music and that sort of stuff. And, uh, and she said, would you like to help lead worship for the junior high? And I said without hesitation, oh, that's not my calling. Now, how at 13 or 14 I knew that I don't know, um, but she had the courage and the foresight to say, "Why don't you just take a couple of weeks and think about it?" And I discovered over those next couple of weeks that I just couldn't stop thinking about how to put song lists together. And of course, this is the early '90s, so we're talking about songs like "Celebrate Jesus," "Celebrate," and "I Sing Praises to Your Name," and all I mean, just some great classics. But I couldn't stop thinking about how to string together songs for this. Song list for this worship time. And so I ended up saying yes and loved it and then wanted to do it again and kept leading worship then all through my high school years, helped out in our youth group there in Malaysia. And then when I moved back to the States just before my 18th birthday, I went to Uh, Oral Roberts University in in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and saw the chapel praise and worship team and thought, wow, these are amazing musicians. I'd love to join in. I remember the first chapel I was at, I was sitting up on the balcony and watching the praise and worship team thinking I can't wait for auditions because maybe I could make it. And I tried out and I got, I didn't make it as a vocalist, but I made it as a keyboardist. And so I kept at it reminding myself that even Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team. And uh, as time went on, I began to be more and more involved in leading worship at chapels. And, and uh, in fact, we sang a song this morning by Jared Anderson. Jared and John Egan uh, were there with me at ORU at the same time. And so together, all of these um, songs were beginning to come uh, Uh, come and develop in our midst, and we would spend the the summer traveling some to lead worship at churches and with ORU's music ministry teams and overseas. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful time. And I I ended up staying on for a year to lead worship at ORU for the chapels. And it was just, again, a very, very special time in, in my life. And then that led to my coming out here. Uh, uh, the summer of 2000, coming out to New Life Church to be an apprentice in the worship department, which which meant basically you can lead worship if there's a slot, but mostly you're making copies for choir practice, you know? And, uh, and I did all of that and was hap- happy to be part of it. And then a buddy said to me, hey, we've got this Friday night college service that I'm starting. You want to help lead worship for it? And so I said yes. And then uh, different ones began to join the band. And over time, it developed into this, this uh, team that we got together to lead worship for our youth conferences called the Desperation Conferences. And so we formed the Desperation Band, and then that led to some recordings and traveling with uh, at conferences because of Integrity Music. And it was just a special time. But I recognized that we were riding a wave of a movement that was really gaining in traction, this contemporary worship movement. And of course, there's early roots of it. You got Stephen Todd here who remembers the Jesus days, the Jesus movement of it within the vineyard days of that movement and all this stuff. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was like there was another kind of bigger wave that uh, that, that was sweeping around the world. And today, there's nothing probably more identifiable to contemporary Christianity than our praise and worship music. In fact, you could go to, to churches all around the world and you'll probably hear a Chris Tomlin song. I mean, it's just, it's like you can count on it. You know, we're going to be, they're going to be singing that or, or it's, it's an identifiable feature of contemporary Christianity. And I, I felt very grateful to be part of it. I feel very grateful to have been a part of that for a number of years. But I also recognize that at the same time, there was an industry component to it and a c- c- commerce side of this. And so what began to happen was worship music began to be marketed as a particular genre or a style or a movement. And I, the people I was fortunate to partner with were all amazing people with incredible hearts of ministry, pure in their way. But I realized in conversations with Christians that they were starting to form in their mind that worship was this optional little piece. It was this musical aspect of the Christian life. And so people would say, oh, I'm not really a worship person. They'd be like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a word person. I like the Bible, or I'm a, I'm a book person. I'm not really a worship person. And what they meant was, I don't really care for this style of music. Right? And I, I realized that people would begin to opt out and other people would say, oh, I'm totally a worship person. I'll go anytime there's a worship concert or a worship band or a worship CD. And worship became this adjective that we throw onto products. And so either people liked it or they didn't, but they could opt out of it. And so then as a response to that, the pendulum would swing the other way and then people would say, oh, it's all worship. Everything is worship. And so people would say, okay, that sounds right. It's all worship. But on the other hand, that was so broad and so general that then we didn't really know what to do with that what do you mean it's all worship? And someone would say, I mean, is, is it worship when I'm brushing my teeth? I mean, what, what, what is whole life worship? And so we either went too specific or too broad, and as a result, we kind of said, I don't know, it's just this thing that Christians do. And I want to say to us this morning that worship is central to the Christian life and practice. And so it's critical that we have a vision of worship that is fitting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has spent all of this time in Romans 1 through 8 telling us the glorious good news and what it means for the forgiveness of sins and what it means for the community of fitting together Jew and Gentile and what it is going to mean for the, the whole cosmos one day. And, and last week, Pastor Jason talked about Romans 9 through 11 where we got to a, 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 enter a little bit of the mystery and the mercy of God at work in the world and how we join into this. And now, at the end of that, Romans 11, Paul kind of breaks into songs. He says, now, to you and through you and from you are all things. It's the praise of your glory, and Romans 12, again, there weren't these chapter divisions when Paul was writing his letter. So he seamlessly turns now to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he says, so brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. I want us to just really camp out on these two verses today and unpack a few things. I want to say four things about our worship as Christians And my hope for you is that by the end of this, you won't see worship as that 20-minute segment of the service that we open up. You won't see worship as a style of music. You won't see worship as a movement or an industry, and you won't see worship as this nebulous catch-all that you're like, yeah, I still don't really know what that is, right? I hope that you'll catch a vision of the kind of worship that the gospel elicits, draws out of all of us. The first thing I want to say is that our worship is possible. Our worship is possible. Romans 12 verse 1 opens by Paul saying, in view of the mercies of God. When you see the mercies of God, I love the J.B. Phillips translation of this. He says, look, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God. Do you see it? Do you see what God has done? See, actually Romans opens up with a story about worship. You remember in week one of this series, we said, Paul starts talking about how the Gentiles were idolaters. Listen, sin, we said in in week one of this series, sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is a failure to worship. Sin is a failure to worship the one true God, the creator. Sin is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Sin is exchanging creation for the creator. Sin at its core is a failure to worship. It says, "Now you're not God, I'm God, I'm going to worship me, I'm going to do what I want. And Paul says that's where all the trouble began, is with this idolatry we began to actually unravel all of it. And if you track Paul's argument, he's basically, he said, the Gentiles worshipped false gods, and then the Jews who knew the one true God were unfaithful in their worship. But either way, there was a failure of worship. Do you see it? And the failure of worship kind of results in this deadness, this alienation from God. I love how the psalmist in the Old Testament, he says, when he's trying to get God to rescue him, he says, listen, God, um, here's why you need to rescue me, because I can't praise you from the grave right? And he says, he says you, you're worthy of the praise, but if you, if you don't get me out of this mess, I'm going to die, and I can't praise you from the grave. That is a little bit of a metaphor of the gospel, and Paul's trying to say, listen, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our transgressions. We were dead because of our distance from God, but God has done the impossible, God has made us alive. God has raised us to life. We've got new creation coming, uh, happening in us right now. Well, what was creation made to do to reflect its praise upward to God? And so in a way, Paul is saying, look, in view of God's mercies, you've been made alive. Creation has been made new inside of you. You're a new creation. So guess what? You can worship. It is possible now to worship. And then, and then, secondly, Paul says our worship is fitting. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It matches. It's the right kind of, of response. The second half of verse 1, Paul says, I encourage you, and I've underlined some key words for you to catch this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. I mean, I wish we had a stronger word for this. Some of your translations, you're reading it in your phone or in your Bible, it might say this is your spiritual act of worship, right? I understand the point of wording it that way, but it doesn't quite represent the language because when the New Testament says something is spiritual, it usually uses a different Greek word. But this time, the Greek word is logikos, which you don't have to be a Greek scholar to get That the idea is it's logical. And what Paul's trying to say is worship is, there's a logic to this. Not just that we have to be thoughtful, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but also that it's the only right response to God when you have eyes wide open to the mercies of God, when you see the impossible thing that God has rescued us and God has fit together Jews and Gentiles as one new people of God who become the new temple of God, who can now offer worship to God, you're saying, wow, wow. The only thing you could do is to worship God. See, sometimes, you know, Paul, his language can be translated in other ways. He could say, I appeal to you, therefore. Or another translation says, I urge you. And we could read, we could hear these words and think, oh, Paul's manipulating me. Paul's like that old Bible-thumping preacher that says, God's been so good to you, but what have you done for him, right? But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying something similar to when you catch a glimpse of, of a beautiful sunrise or a gorgeous sunset, and you look out the horizon, you think, wow. Paul says, if you just caught a glimpse of the horizon of God's grace, the horizon of God's mercy, you, you look at it and you say, oh God, wow. I worship you. This is why in our, in our liturgy, the call and response moment right at the table, you know, we say, the Lord is here, and you say, His Spirit is with us. And then we say, uh, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And then we say, let us give thanks to the Lord. And you say, it is right, which is so very English. I mean, I think, I, I mean, this is a, you know, a liturgy that, that comes down to us through uh, old, the old country, England. And it's, you know, it is right to give you thanks and praise. I think that's like British for, yes, Lord, you know, let's give thanks to the Lord. And we say, that's the moment in the liturgy where we say, yeah, what else could we do? What else could we do? You have been so good to us. You have done the impossible. What else can we do? So our worship is fitting. Thirdly, and this is where I want to spend a bit of time on this morning, our worship is physical. It's physical. Now, this is interesting because, again, when we read Romans 12, 1 and 2, we get hung up on a translation that says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And so, oh, yes, I love this is me communing with God. Certainly, there's a dynamic of that. But notice that in every translation of this passage, it talks about our bodies. Like, you can't escape that. The Greek word for bodies is Bodies. You know, like there's no nuancing this. He's talking about this you, your physicality. You say, "Wait a second, why? Why does our physicality matter?" Actually, if you follow Paul throughout Romans, he's been talking about our bodies a lot. (laughs) You know, Romans one, he says, "Look, the idolatry. What happened from this idolatry? Well, it led to people dishonoring their bodies. Remember that? That's there in the last half of Romans one. So Paul says." What we do in worship actually shows up in our bodies. So when you worship false gods with idolatry and you worship the gods of sex or power or money, it actually distorts and it shows up in your bodies. Your body will tell you when you're worshiping wrongly. I mean, how many times do you, do you wake up with like stress or aches or something and you're like, wow, I'm driving myself too hard. And maybe it's your body being a prophet to you saying, I think you're worshiping wrongly Here. But there's more to it than that, of course. And then Paul says in Romans 6 and 7 and 8, he starts talking about what will happen to our bodies because of the gospel. Notice that nowhere in Romans is Paul concerned with our souls being saved. He talks about us being justified. He talks about us being made at peace with God. He talks about all of the stuff, but he also says, so now, present your bodies. Put your body under the power of God's redemption. Put your body, and ser- Jason taught on this, the Romans 6 passage, where, where, you know, Paul says, don't offer your body as servants of unrighteousness, but present your body, as some translations say, as weapons of righteousness. Amazing. It'd be a great tattoo, weapons of righteousness, you know. <laughs> Clearly, I've got them. And Paul says, why are you laughing? Paul says, present your body. This is what you're supposed to do with your bodies now. God's not just interested in your your soul or your spirit. He sees you in totality, an integrated being. And so your body, Romans 8 says, will one day be redeemed. Your body itself, we say, Romans says that your body will be redeemed one day. And you think, wow, God really cares about the physical. Yes, he does. Some of us have unknowingly inherited a version of Christianity that's more like Greek philosophy than it is like the New Testament. Greek philosophy, a couple hundred years before Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, taught us, or taught the the world at that time, the region at that time, that matter doesn't matter. The material world is bad. It's less than the world of ideas. So you had the world of forms, the material world, and the world of ideas, and so the Greeks developed this dualism, this division of the spirit and the body. And, they, and out of that f- came two other branches of this Greek philosophy. One were the Stoics. The Stoics said, well, if it doesn't really matter what happens to your body, then just grin and bear it. Just go through suffering. Go through the heart. It doesn't matter. Just, you can, it, because the ideas and your mind and all of that stuff, that's what matters, right? How many Christians do you know that are actually Stoics, not Christians? And then the other branch of Greek philosophy is the Epicureans. They said, well, look, if your body doesn't matter, then just do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Literally, that's the Epicurean uh, slogan, right? Is go ahead, party on, dudes. Because it doesn't matter what happens in your body as long as your mind is right. And Paul comes along and says, actually, the word became flesh. The logos became physical. That's huge, huge to both. It would, it would offend the sensibilities of a Jew because how could, but it might also offend the sensibilities of the Greeks to say, well, those two things aren't supposed to go together. And so Paul says, yeah, this whole cross is a stumbling block to both, but let's work this out. God's redemption is holistic. And so our worship is physical. It's physical. I, I grew up where people said to me, you are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body, also flies in the face of the New Testament because we are not chopped up that way. We know that there's some time lapse. We, can, we experience the communion with God in our spirit and our souls or you know, whatever, however we try to understand the, the inner person, and we know our bodies are lagging in that. We know our bodies will break down and die, but their redemption is coming. So there's a bit of a time lag. But the the New Testament, the Bible as a whole actually integrates this for us, spirit, soul, and body. If I were to come up to you and punch you in the mouth, which I would not do, with my weapons of righteousness, (laughs) your, your body may bruise, maybe. Your soul may feel anger or confusion at the very least and your spirit may harbor the root of bitterness. Well, which one is it? It's all integrated. Do you see what I'm saying? It's all integrated. So our redemption and our worship is integrated into the physical. This is why in Psalm 95, it's so beautiful. It starts out by calling us to worship with physical acts. Sing for joy, shout aloud. A few verses later, Bow down. Physical acts. There's something physical about it. That when we do those things, something happens to us. And actually, we're catching up to this with the social sciences. Scientists have discovered that when a group of people get together and sing, it actually releases oxytocin in the brain. It actually releases that chemical that makes you feel bonded and it, with a feeling of well-being. Well, gee. Maybe that's why the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because... The physiology of singing and taking in a breath and taking out a breath and, and with giving it song, it does something to us. That's great. But, but I want to say, don't stop there. It's not just physical in the physical acts of worship. It's physical as in a life of obedience. See, the other theme that Paul pulls all throughout Romans, from Romans 1 to Romans 16, is the gospel is designed to produce in us a faithful obedience. And so worship is not primarily demonstrated through spiritual experiences, but through embodied obedience. Now, please hear me on this. I'm not putting down spiritual experiences. I believe that as we sing, it's one of the ways that we experience the renewal of the the, the presence of the Spirit in us. I believe in that. But I'm saying to you, don't get caught up chasing this. That you forget to embrace this. Don't get caught up chasing the spiritual experience, that you forget to embrace an embodied obedience, that actually you live a life of worship, not by saying, oh, it's all worship, my brushing of teeth, and my, no, 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 no. You, you live a life of worship by saying, God, how can all my choices be done in an act of obedience to you today? How can every decision that I make, how can every choice of how I spend my time and my energy and my love, how can I do it in a way to obey you today? When we say worship is physical, we don't just mean that we clap and sing. We mean that the clapping and the singing lead us to physical embodied obedience. Do You notice how Psalm 95 ends? I mean, it starts with, come, let us sing for joy. I mean, that's like one, two, three, you know, it's like rock and roll. Come on, Psalm 95, you know. And then it ends with, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden my, your heart. And then it goes on and it says, and therefore I said to that wicked generation, you shall not enter my rest. Like, well, that was kind of a downer, you know. Started so peppy, ended so down, you know. That's because Psalm 95 wants us to see. We learn the physicality of worship when we sing and clap and bow down and kneel, and we continue the physicality of worship as we walk out of here and obey God, and obey God with our lives. So I want to talk for a minute about that, how this works, how to put this into practice before we get to the fourth point. I want to talk for a moment about thoughts and practices. See, sometimes we tend to look at the top half of this diagram and we think, if I just change my thoughts, I'll change my practices. If I change my thinking, I'll change my behavior. Now, that's true. There's a a kind of truth to that. It does often work that way. You you learn something new and then you live, you apply it and you learn differently. It does work that way. But I want to challenge us this morning to think (laughs) that that's only one of the ways that it works. Let me illustrate this for you. There are two ways to learn a town two ways to learn a town, okay? The first way is to memorize street names and study the map. Two ways to learn a town. Study the map, memorize the street names. The other way to learn a town is just by walking its streets. Riding your bike, driving your car, growing up in it. So, my wife is from a small farming community in Iowa, which is to say she's from Iowa, and... (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and her town in the northwest corner of Iowa um, has just about a 1,000 people. There's no stoplight. They only recently got a blinking light. And it's only because there's this main row there of uh, two or three banks, the gas station, the grocery store, and the drugstore. And so we just needed to add that little blinking light, right? It's very busy. <laughs> And I've been going to this town for a lot of years, from the years that we were dating to the, we've been married 16 years and we we go, you know, every so often. And I remember one of the times we were there during the summer, one of our kids got sick and I, and we didn't bring children's Motrin with us or whatever it was. I'm like, we need to go get some. And I said, I'll I'll go, I'll go to the the drugstore and and pick some up. And I said, Hey, just to be sure what, where, uh, where is the drugstore? And they looked at me like, seriously, man. And uh, I said, yeah, and they said, oh, it's on Main Street. You can't miss it. I said, great. Now, I am a cognitive kind of person. You may guess this about me. I tend to work from thoughts to practices. This is how I learn. So I'm thinking Main Street, Main Street. Look for Main Street. So the farm is maybe a half a mile away from the town. So I'm getting on the gravel road, turn down, and as I'm approaching the town, you know, start looking at street names to turn right, and okay, there's one street name, there's one... And then I see one, and it's called Main Street. So I'm like, okay, great, there it is. I turn on Main Street, and it's a row of houses. I was like, this is weird, like, what? Like, well, they, they said Main Street. Okay, so I'm going to trust them. And I drive up, and I'm looking, like, maybe it's a drugstore that operates out of a house, but I don't think so. I've seen this out, not that kind of drugstore. And, and as I'm driving through, like, I don't see it It's just houses. I don't see this thing, you know. And then finally, it's a small town, it doesn't take you long to work through the grid, and, uh, and I found my way to the street where the three banks and the one grocery store and the library and the gas station and the drugstore were, and it's called Reed Street. So I got the children's motor and went back to the farm, and I said, oh, here it is, let's make sure, you know, she's feeling better and all this stuff. And then I said, you know, guys, curious thing, <laughs> the, the drugstore's not on Main Street. And they all looked at me like, Huh? I was like, yeah, it's actually on Reed Street. And every one of them, her parents, her, they were like, oh, yeah, I guess it, Like we, just didn't, we don't even think about the name of it. It's just Main Street, because that's where everything is. I'm like, yeah, but it's not called Main Street. <laughs> there are two ways to learn a town. One is by memorizing names and ma- studying maps, and the other is just by growing up there and by driving there and riding your bike there and walking there and knowing the neighbors and having the same seventh grade teacher who taught your grandparents i mean literally that's how you, that's another way to learn a town you know i'm not even exaggerating on that one and i think i think this is like the christian life one way to learn the, the Christian life is by saying, God, I need you to change my thinking on this. That's absolutely true. But there's another sense in which we keep practicing certain things, and it shapes our thinking. You keep coming to church, and we pray a prayer, a confession every week, and you learn over time. You're like, you know what? I don't hear the message and say, yeah, I got this. I hear the message, and I say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me. We practice coming to communion each week because it's a way of saying, yeah, Lord, I I, I need to be fed by your grace to sustain me today. We're about to enter the season of Advent, the journey to Christmas and then Epiphany and all the whole beginning of the Christian year. And we mark time in this way as a practice that says, Jesus, amidst all of the other ways of keeping time, kids' fall productions and soccer tournaments and all the stuff, Help me to keep time by the life of Christ. And so a practice ends up shaping your thinking, and it goes on and on. Your thinking shapes your practice, and your practice shapes your thinking. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, so brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies. That's a practice. Take my physical acts, Lord. And then verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's thinking. Thinking is required. And then he even says, so that you can figure out You're going to have to think this through. The J.B. Phillips translation again, verse 2 says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice. You see both things at work here. Let your mind, there's a mold, there's already a habit, a natural flow of habits and practices that the world engages in. Don't let them squeeze you into that. Adopt some new practices. Let your, figure this out, get a new kind of thinking, and then you'll prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all His demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. I want to give you one little way of how to think through, how to figure out. N.T. Wright's translation of verse 2 says, what's more, don't let yourself be squeezed into the shape dictated by, and he doesn't say world, he said the present age. And that's because of the language here is helpful. The language there, the original language there in Greek has us thinking about the world in terms of an age, this present age. And Paul does this a lot. He has us thinking about the future as eternal life, as in God's age to come. And so in a way, what Paul is saying is, figure out, think this through. What is the world going to look like when Jesus' reign comes fully on earth as it is in heaven? What's it fully like when God reigns? And then try in as much as it is possible to live like that now. Ask yourself, how can I live now as it will be then? You say, well, well, then... Forgiveness ends up being the most powerful force. In the yeah, okay, so I'm going to try to live now as it will be. How, how do I start to live now? How do I, what's the kind of radical generosity, servanthood, that doesn't make sense in this present age, that's governed by productivity and success and accomplishment and of selfish ambition? Yeah. What are the values that are from a different time zone, if you will? And how can you live from the future, even now. This, this requires thinking. This requires embracing new practices. This is why, and I think there's so many trails we could take here at this point, because I think this is why Christians have always done things that, that have baffled people who live by this present age. Christians go and care for the sick. Why would they do that? Ooh, that, that seems risky. Christians go and give up their time to serve, bring hurricane relief. I mean, the USA Today had this reference to it uh, several weeks ago, saying churches are still today leading the way in relief efforts. Why? But it leaves everyone saying, why, why would you do that? Can you profit from this? Is this a business venture? Like, no, we just think this is what Jesus will do. We just think that in the future age, everything wrong will be set right. We can't set it right now, but we're just going to try to live now as it will be then. This is what it means to think this through. Your worship is the result of thinking this through. And then finally... The last thing Paul wants us to know is that our worship is pleasing. Our worship is pleasing to God. A couple times in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul uses this word pleasing. First in verse 1, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. And then verse 2, he says, look, if you renew your mind, you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing. Now we've shied away from talking about a life that pleases God. Because some of us have been through such damaging experiences in church where the language about pleasing God was language of performance, right? Language of, of you you better please God, like you're the circus performer that's juggling and riding the unicycle, like, God, are you pleased yet? Ah. And I, I get that. That can be damaging. And so we, we take so much comfort in saying I'm already pleasing to God because of Jesus. And that's true. And that's true. But it's also true that because of the Holy Spirit, you can begin to live in a way that is also pleasing to God. You, in your choices, in your actions, it can please God. I know on one side is the pitfall where we don't want to say that you can please God on your own strength. No, 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 no. That, the, the Reformation helped us think through that. No, you can't please God on your own. But on the other hand, is this other pitfall that says, well, we can't please God, so let's not even try it. Let's just get together, sing, thank God for forgiveness, and hold out to heaven. You know? It's like, no, what? Paul says, no. Use your thoughts. Use your practices. Present yourself in such a way that the Holy Spirit enables you to live in a way that makes God smile. So did you know that in Christ, you already are pleasing to God? Hallelujah. Did you know that? And did you know that through the Holy Spirit, you can please God? Amen. Both are true. Both are true. In Christ, you already are pleasing to God. And through the Holy Spirit, you can live in a way that is pleasing to God. You're the offering of your bodies, the offering of your time, the offering of every act of obedience can be the occasion that, says, that God says, man, I love that. I love that you did that. I love that you showed up on a Saturday to go clean up Palmer High School. I love that you gave an hour of your week to mentor a kid at at Queen Palmer. I love that you invited a neighbor over to your house. I love that. Oh, I'm so pleased about that. I, I think if we miss that component, if we only hang out here, we miss the ongoing joy that God takes in your actual life. If we only hang out here, this is what we internalize. like, Well, God doesn't actually like me. He just has to because of Jesus. How many of you think that way? Well, I don't know if God actually... But I'm trying to say to you, when you present yourself to, to the Lord, the Holy Spirit begins to work in you, and you begin to live in such a way that God says, I love that guy. I love that gal. That is so, I love what they're doing. I love that they are... are they plowed through all of the laundry in their house this weekend. I love that they did that as an act of service, offered up to me as worship. I thought that just makes me smile. I have four kids, and our three girls are in dance classes at a, a friend's ballet studio here in town, and. And, you know, the older girls, 12 and 10, they, they had this, well, all three of them had this peak week where you could come the tail end of class and watch them dance. And the older girls, they don't care as much now. They're 12 and 10. They're just there too. They're very serious about it. Yeah. But Jane, Jane's five. And Jane's personality, life's a party anyway, you know. She would have been a great Epicurean had she grown up that way. Yeah. Thank you for making that connection. And I went to Jane's Peak Week to watch her dance and uh, I kept looking at her and I'm videoing, I'm watching, they did the dance twice and my eyes, I'm just fixed on her. And she won't look at me. <laughs> she w- and she said when it was over, she's like, dad, I didn't want to look at you because I would be embarrassed. And I said, all right, okay. But there was one time, one moment, fraction of a second where she glanced over and I was looking at her and I said, And I think, I think that God wants you to look at him, catch his eyes, because his eyes are fixed on you, and he delights in you. And when you're sacrificing and when you're offering up your life and when you're doing all of those things in the hidden moments, showing up early on a Sunday morning, setting up parking lot signs, staying late to tear down the lobby, when you're going through the week, taking care of your kids, looking out for your friends, when you do that extra act, bringing a meal over to someone who's just had a baby, all of those moments, I think the father is saying, I love that. I love that. Don't live your life with this fear that like I can't look at the Lord because his eyes are gonna be like this. Trust that you already are pleasing and that when you live that way, through the Holy Spirit, that God the Father looks at you and says, mm, Love that kid. Love that kid. That kid makes me smile. And you do. Would you bow your heads this morning?